This land is your land This land is my land From Hi, this is Heart Talk Radio. I'm Cheryl Murphy, your host. And this evening our guest is Mobilaji Alambom... I was practicing this, I swear. Mobilaji Alambiwanu. And Mobilaji has a very interesting and timely story and conversation he's going to share with us here in just a moment. Also, remember that we are on Facebook. You can always find who our guest is going to be up next and our previously recorded programs there. Also, you can email us at heartstockradio at gmail.com. Just a moment, Mobilaji will be with us. He is co-founder and co-creator of Dream Seeker Films and the Hope Love Beauty Project. In just a moment, we will be back with Mobilaji. Hello, this is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. Grant is manning the board, and we're so thankful that you're here and uh, that you get to take part in our guest today, who is Mobilaji Alambiwanu of Dreamseeker Films and the Hope Love Beauty Project. Hi, Mobilaji. How are you? Hi, Carol. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being on the air with us here today. So, tell our listeners just a little brief intro here. Uh, what is Dream Seeker Films and the Hope Love Beauty Project, please? Dream Seeker Media is my media company that does well anything from uh, documentaries to corporate videos to films, etc. And the Hope Love and Beauty Project is one of the projects under Dream Seeker Media which is designed to look at how people find hope in the midst of tragedy. And then underneath the Hope, Love, and Beauty project is my film, Ferguson Rises, which I believe is what we're going to talk about today. Indeed. Before we get into the nuts and bolts of what you're doing at Dream Seeker Media, let's talk about you. <laughs> you have a very fascinating story yourself. Can you talk about that a little bit, where you grew up, uh, when you came to the United States, some of the things that have occurred and happened in your life that have influenced the journey that you've set your feet on currently? Sure. Um, let's see if I can do that briefly. Um, <laughs> I, Take your um, time. <laughs> um, I came to, to the United States when I was nine years old in the 80s, and at that time, there was no internet, of course, which uh, a lot of younger people are not familiar with, in which case coming from Nigeria, West Africa at that time, it was very challenging to get people to really understand where I came from, 
understand my cultural background and understand me in general. I had an accent, um, so I didn't sound mm. anything like I sound now. Can you still and do that accent, Momolaji? I don't know. I don't know how to do a nine-year-old boy's accent, but um, because <laughs> <but> I, <laughs> I, I don't know what I sounded like at nine, but I, I, I think yeah. I can do the adult version of the uh, of the accent, but not the uh, nine-year-old version of the accent. Um, sure, I, I, I can do it. I, I don't. I don't even know if I'm that good at it anymore. I, I practice <laughs> so hard at losing my accent and yes. and, fit, and fitting in that that now. Um, as an adult, when it seems like it's uh, more glamorous not to fit in, it, it's um, yeah. it's a bit harder now to to revert back to my uh, my old ways, for sure. But um, I'll try to do the whole interview in that accent. Yeah, uh, I'll make it difficult on your audience. <laughs> and so, and that's generally what happened when I came was uh, uh-huh. um, I, I would say things and people didn't understand what I was saying. So. I had to spend a lot of time watching the Brady Bunch and uh, watching reruns of the Brady Bunch and Leave It to Beaver and uh, cycling through 50s and 60s slang only to realize we were in the 80s and um, and it was completely uh, irrelevant. So 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 most people uh, most people were like, "What are, what is he saying? Who is this person? What are you talking about?" And then I would go back and learn something from another TV show. They're like, that show's from the 50s. Why are you, why, why are you, why are you sounding, why are you speaking like, like, leave it to Beaver? And, you know, and I'm like, oh, no. And they're like, yeah, watch color television, not black and white. And I was like, oh, okay. And then I watched the Brady Bunch. And they're like, okay, not that color television, this color television. <laughs> I was like, they're like, that's color television from the 60s. You got to watch color television from the 80s, not the 70s or the 60s. You know, so they had to, they had to delineate it. They're like, okay, watch these shows. <laughs> it's like okay, I'll watch those shows and I'll be back tomorrow and I'll pr- I'll bring my new learned accent. So it took about uh, I think I don't remember how long it took to lose that accent, but um, but to finally sort of understand all the American slang, I think it probably took me like ten years. So it took it takes a lot longer to understand all the nuances I think of the of American slang, and uh, I think I understand them now. I hope so. So I mean that in general is my story, and I think the biggest impact uh, uh, on me in coming to America was moving from a country with um, a totally black African population or predominantly black African population. There are Lebanese and Europeans and Nigeria as well. Um, and some, you know, Chinese and Indians and whatnot, but very small numbers. And so coming to a country where I'm not the majority and coming to a country where um, there's uh, stereotypes based on slavery and based on the legacy of uh, racism, a whole different legacy of racism, was a very interesting experience because, you know, I came to America and people assumed I knew how to play basketball, which I'd never even known anything about, you know, because I played soccer in Nigeria. They assumed I didn't know how to swim because somehow they assumed that black people don't know how to swim. So there were all these sort of racial assumptions that I got to step right into and experience not as my natural environment, but as an outsider. And I think that gave me a unique perspective on race relations in America, something that I think a lot of black people and a lot of white folks um, in America don't particularly have, um, because if you grew up here and you spent all your life here, you don't really get that fish out of water experience that allows you to be able to see some of the humor and some of the ridiculousness and uh, some of the assumptions that we make about each other. And so I think 
that's where I began to criticize and sort of critique the culture and the experiences and the stereotypes that I saw that were being imposed upon me and other people. And then at 19, I was arrested and framed by the police, which was my initiation into, uh, I call it my initiation into African-American-ness. So as a foreigner and as someone who came from Nigeria, I really bought into the American ethos, the idea that hard work and doing the right thing was always going to lead to the appropriate results. And then this arrest and frame really sort of threw things off because uh, in my mind, you know, when I was arrested and framed, I'm thinking, well, one, I didn't do anything wrong. So I was re- let me just be clear that I was arrested and framed for something that I did, a crime that I did not commit. And in my mind, that was impossible because America is about fairness and equality uh, for everyone. And that moment with being arrested and framed really sort of broke that mirror for me where I then was not able to see myself in quite the same way. I had always considered myself to be African and not realizing that, you know, of course, when you lose your accent, one, people are going to assume you're African-American. And two, even without an accent, just walking on the street, what some people see is a black person only and not even really a black person, but they see um, they see their fears. Uh, you know, and they're they're sort of inner demons, and I guess that's what I I came to represent in this community for certain people. Um, as I was walking around doing door to door sales for uh, I guess we'll call it like an encyclopedia, it was like a textbook company, um, Southwestern out of Nashville, Tennessee, and so many of my African American friends were always laugh about it, and they said, "Well, we would have told you 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 should." You know, as a black person, you should never do door-to-door sales because that's not going to end well for you. But since you're African, you didn't know that. <laughs> but, you know, so in that process, I experienced what it means to be African-American. I experienced going someplace as a black person where no one knew me. And my education, at, you know, being at UCLA, I was not insulated by being, you know, at UCLA or insulated by coming from an upper middle class family of uh, medical professionals. I was not insulated by any of those factors. And so I was just, you know, a black person, an unknown entity on the streets of uh, Southern Jersey. And so it's that experience that really woke me up to what my African-American friends were saying and sort of has led to my ability to be able to also empathize with many white Americans as well, because a lot of those assumptions that I had about fairness and equality and how things worked are the assumptions that many, I think, white Americans hold till this day because they don't have something that's able to shadow those assumptions based on on their racial makeup. And so for me, um, I'm, I guess in a way I, I act as a bridge because I, I was someone who thought that way, who now thinks differently based on my experience, but only really based solely on my experience. And so I can understand how people who don't have that experience may not see that as viable. I usually say the African-American experience is like science fiction. You know, you wouldn't believe it unless you experienced it. And I think that's very much the case for me. Um, It was very much like science fiction, the idea that anybody would go out of their way to harm me or to do something to someone that they don't know for absolutely no reason other than the color of their skin um, was unfathomable to me before this happened. And then when it happened, I realized, wow, this is the story uh, of America as it relates to African-American people. And it was deeply saddening, but also awakening.
And I began to study and read and learn African-American history and learn all the contributions that Africans and African-Americans had made to the world and realized that our educational system is really lacking when it comes to those things. And then that sort of led me to wanting to make films that actually contributed to that understanding, to shedding sort of, to accentuating the, the merits of shedding our prejudices and really um, moving towards greater understanding. And I think the best way to achieve that is to begin to understand the history of African people around the world in this, in this country. And I think once we understand that, we'll realize um, it'll shatter all the, the presuppositions that we have and enable us to really move forward as a culture and a people. And uh, Ferguson Rises, I think, is the first step in that process. It's a documentary about Ferguson. I, and I'll certainly let you jump in if you want to um, ask me a question or, or I can continue explaining what Ferguson Rises is. It's up to you. Yeah. Before we do that, I'm hoping that we can talk just a little bit more about what you just said, and that is the assumptions. I know that there was a an interview that I was listening to that you kind of touched upon is that we only can relate to issues based on our own experiences sometimes, and um, some of the the Caucasian or white folks that you talked to said things like, well, the police are really nice to us, so we don't see that there's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> and, and can you talk about that just a little bit more from your perspective as a, a filmmaker and someone, like you said, with a very unique perspective? So how is it that both you know, African-Americans and European-Americans can really stretch across that divide? I mean, I think it's empathy, number mm. one. Um, it starts with empathy. And it also starts with, with belief, like believing someone when they tell you what their experience is. I mean, I think women experience this, you know, a lot where men will downplay the, the sort of um, experiences that you have. And I think so anybody who's experienced being downplayed and not listened to, really understands um, what it feels like to not be listened to um, and their circumstances, whether you've experienced that within your household, within your family, it may have nothing to do with gender or race in that, in that experience, but you can sort of extrapolate that now and imagine what it's like now, not only for people in your family not to listen to you, but for the whole world yeah. not to listen mm -hmm. to you um, yeah. or to listen to you in a way that's um, destructive to your well-being, mm -hmm. to listen to you in other, yeah, listen to you as, as a threat, in a sense. And, and so I think um, that's what I learned through my experience doing door-to-door -door sales. Is I, I, just, I had no idea that this world existed in, in that way, and I don't know how I made it till 19 without a, that experience. I mean, I had some <laughs> other racial experiences growing up, for sure, um, but I always saw it as an individual thing, not as a systemic thing. And I think most of America has looked at racism as an individual thing. These guys who you know are in the KKK or who try to kill people or who kill people successfully or who do something overt, but this country hasn't really looked at it as a systemic issue enough to really combat the issues that we're dealing with. But I think before we even look at it as a systemic issue, I think we have to understand and empathize and trust that when people share their experiences, they're sharing their truth and that their truth is, is um, is the truth because it's it's mm -hmm. their experience and there's no right. way that we can refute it. And I think quite often the African-American experience is refuted. Mm -hmm. um, and I 
I experienced that even with my African-American friends. I would say, oh, no, the police didn't stop you because you're black. They stopped you because you have your hat on backwards. They stopped you because you're, you know, you're sagging your pants. They stopped you because you look, you know, whatever. And so I would, this is something I would say until I was arrested and framed. So, um, so I totally get it when I hear um, European-Americans or white Americans say that because I said all those things myself. And it's it's yeah. completely out of ignorance for the experiences that um, that these folks have and their their ability to be able to judge and discern the difference between uh, discrimination and and something that you caused yourself. Um, yeah. you, you know, and I think that's women know this very well, right? Uh, as mm-hmm. well, like you know, did you cause someone to attack you because you wore a short dress, or is that person at fault for right. attacking you because they they attacked you? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, you know, so, so it's, it's, yeah. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Let's let's go ahead and take our midway break here, and just a moment, we will be back with Mobilaji and continue our discussion. Yeah. This is hard stuck. This is Pasta Radio. I am your host, Earl Murphy. Our guest today, Mobilaji Alamuanu. Hi again, Mobilaji. Hi. We were just talking about Ferguson Rises and Hope Love Beauty Project. Please share with our listeners a little bit about the show. What's your mission? What's your objective? We already talked about that just a little bit more, but maybe you could go more in depth about that. Sure. Ferguson Rises is a documentary about the community of Ferguson that sort of became the flashpoint for the modern day civil rights movement. In essence, the Selma of our times. Um, I think history in 20 years or so will, you know, or more, will look back on this moment um, on the murder of Mike Brown and the killing of Mike Brown and see it as the birthplace of a new a new civil rights movement. Certainly it was the birthplace of Black Lives Matter. They were actually burst after the killing of Trayvon Martin, but they really um, sort of took up steam after the killing of Michael Brown and and, uh, organizing around that killing. So this film is not about Black Lives Matter specifically. It's about um, the community and the varying views about the murder of Michael Brown and how we might be able to move forward. So the goal of the film is really essentially to look at how we can find potentially hope, love, and beauty in the midst of tragedy. How do we find healing as a nation, as a community, 
it's not so much an, an overt message in the film, but it's sort of the subtext because we interview people from um, all different backgrounds and different perspectives, whether they're conservatives, white, black, etc. We interview those folks and really talk about what their understandings are of the event. And most importantly, even though we do have a specific perspective on it, we respect all individuals who we interview as human beings, as three-dimensional characters. Um, so there's no clear set of villains per se uh, i don't believe in a in a black and white uh, that's a no pun intended um but a, a black and white uh, approach to the world i mean i think everybody is much more nuanced than they're given credit for even the white supremacist person as angry as this will probably make some people for me to say but even the white supremacist uh, person has a reason for doing what they what they're doing and they believe that that's the right thing to do so it doesn't mean i agree with it it doesn't mean i'm, I'm certainly safe in their presence but there is i think in all, in all people a desire to do something good in the world and contribute even if on the surface it looks violent even if on the, on the surface it looks like it's the antithesis of what we believe society needs you know I think everybody does have that underlying intention, with the exception, of course, of sociopaths and psychopaths who, who may not have the capacity for, um, for empathy on, on any level. And so, um, but with the exception of those folks, I think we all have that. And I think what I did and how I approached going to Ferguson was listening to people in a way that I thought was constructive. And I think part of listening to people in a constructive way is listening for what their positive underlying intention is. Um, this is something I learned from a lot of transformational work that I've done and so also conflict resolution work is that while you on the surface you may hear one thing, there's a subtext and there's a positive subtext and there's a way in which you can listen past all the anger, past all the upset and listen for the positive subtext. And in doing that, you can transform the conversation, you can transform people's lives and um, it literally takes about 30 seconds to really, if you listen properly, to actually transform the subtext and to really get what people's true commitment is. And I think what I witnessed on the ground in Ferguson is that the protesters and uh, the protesters who are a mix of white and black, let's just be clear, um, there's a sense that these protesters at that time and even now sometimes are just sort of these radical black folks, but the protesters are a mix of different ethnicities now and back then they were, um, they were also a mix of different ethnicities, even though Missouri is mostly a black and white city. They were mixtures of, of black and white people and some other smatterings of other ethnic groups as well that participated in the protests. But to summarize what I was saying, the protesters and the people who, were, who believed they were against the protesters, I think, were really want the same thing. And I think ultimately what they want is a community that works for everyone. And I think there are some individuals, you know, maybe who don't want a community that works for everyone, but I think those are very few people. Um, those are few and far between. I think most people want a community that works for everyone. And the protesters want to see the community change so it works for everyone. And many of the white residents who are conservative want to see the community stay the same for the most part because they felt it worked for everyone. But I think underlying that need to see it stay the same was because was because they felt it worked and because they felt it worked for everyone. So I think in order to have a conversation and demonstrate that it doesn't work for everyone to logical people and to caring people i think you can do that you can have that conversation if you do it in the right way and if you listen in the right way in particular and reflect back that positive underlying um, intention and so that's how we were able to have breakthroughs in our conversations with people and really get at their humanity and um, hopefully the film is a representation of all the, the different people and different perspectives and you know right now we're still of course 
raising the last little bit of funds to make that happen to finish the last bit of the film but we're we're probably within uh, a month and a half two months away from finishing the film and uh, the goal is to get it out before the election so that way we can begin to have this dialogue in a constructive fashion um, before we go into the election and hopefully then transform something on the other end of the election as well that makes the, the, the country a better place for all of us who live here. And you have a whole team of people that have been with you, some of them from the very beginning. Anybody that you'd like to mention and how they've contributed to the production? Sure. Wonderful question. I don't get asked that often enough, and I guess I need to interject and, and, and put that in the conversation. There have been a lot of people that have sort of held me up, and in particular, the people who were most instrumental were the ones that were there in the beginning, because um, that was the time when I had the most doubt, and that was the time when I thought, okay, am I crazy? Am I going to start spending money on something that sounds hokey, like a Hope, Love, and Beauty project, you know, and how's that going to be seen by the world? And so being able to talk to my wife and have her support, um, being able to talk to my wife and producer, rather, I should say, Daisy Moan, and get that support from her, I think was really important. And then being able to also get that support from my other producer, Tanae Seabrook, um, that's how it all began. And my cinematographer, of course, there were the, essentially there, were, there was the four of us in the beginning sort of starting this conversation in Watts, ironically enough. Um, it didn't begin in Ferguson. It actually began with us in Watts shooting at the uh, Jordan Downs housing projects and asking people the Jordan Downs housing projects, um, which is in South Los Angeles, what gives them hope, what they love, what they find beautiful. And we did this to sort of create a counter narrative to the standard narrative that we have about the projects, the standard narrative we have about South LA. And we wanted to discover for ourselves if there was actually something good about living in the projects. And through that experience, we discovered all the good things that, um, that people experienced in the midst of all the tragedy um, that occurs in the projects. We also discovered those good things. And I think it's important to have that perspective on life and important to have that um, perspective to sort of inspire us to keep moving forward and to keep participating in, um, in daily life and, and in daily struggle. And, um, I, and so what, I, what happened initially that got this Ferguson project started was Michael Brown was killed, for one while we were shooting in Watts. And then at that point, my wife was also seven months pregnant. And it occurred to me that somewhere in the future, this son of mine that was about to be born would ask me the question. He, he would say, what did you do when all this was going on? And I didn't want to turn around, you know, 15 years from that point and say, I did nothing. And so I felt like it was incumbent upon me to have an answer to that question and not only to have an answer, but to have an answer that reshaped and recontextualized his experience of self his sense of self as a black child in America in a way that enabled him to, to live with the tragedy and transcend that tragedy in some way, shape, or form. I felt like it was incumbent upon me to offer him some level of hope and to offer other people's children some level of hope as well. Mm -hmm. Not in a saccharine sort of way, but in a hope that was sort of embedded in struggle and embedded in this idea that the journey begins within yourself and you have to choose to liberate yourself and liberate your mind first and, and liberate yourself from those from how society may see you, those shackles that, um, that hold you down. And in that way, once you liberate yourself, you're already free. And it doesn't mm -hmm. really matter what, what happens on the outside. 
you know, unfortunately, we can't control how, which laws are passed and how we can change things. We can certainly push and agitate. But, you know, as we know from politics, sometimes things swing forward, sometimes they swing backwards. They keep going yeah. um, in, in different seen. directions. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so, so that's that's the part that we're focused on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How might, as as we're going to have to close here, how might listeners find you and your project? We're on GoFundMe, certainly. We have a GoFundMe project, um, which, which has our trailer um, and more information about the project. It's called Ferguson Rises on GoFundMe. I believe if you search on GoFundMe, um, you'll see Ferguson Rises project pop up. I could obviously pass on a link and it could be added, I guess, at some point um, yep. to your website. But um, mm-hmm. but yeah, we're there and we're... Um, we are in the process. We're in the trenches, um, raising the money to really uh, create this awareness and to really contribute. So hopefully, that will turn out well in the next couple of months, and we'll we'll finish everything on time. So um, that's what our hope is. Thank you so much for being on the heart technology and the work that you're doing. Thank you. Appreciate it. And as usual, we will be back next week. Start stop. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. Peace. Heartstock Radio is a production of KBMF 102.5 Butte America Radio. Hear our live programs every Friday at 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time via live stream at butteamericaradio.org. Let's